Welcome to the What If Podcast with your hosts, Spencer Worth Davis and Ryan Copperood. You are listening to the What If Podcast. Uh, we are listening to something you can't hear. And if you want to have the same experience as us, though, just go put on Wannabe by the Spice Girls and uh, fast forward into the most crack open the Miller Lite and you'll be right here with us. <laughs> the most effective copyright law hack that exists. <laughs> Don't, yeah, we're just telling you, we're Uh-oh. narrating our personal experience. Oh, we got into Spice Girls remixes on Spotify. We got to abort. That's not a thing. <laughs> oh, hell yeah, it is. What? Yeah, dude. Who? Okay. Who? Who made a, who made a Spice Girls remix? I don't know. It can't be like Somebody anybody none of us notable, have ever heard right? of. Yeah. All right. That okay. makes me feel a little better. It's probably DJs from the 90s, right? Yeah, probably. <laughs> sorry, I was going to sneeze and then I didn't. And then, a, sorry. And then a Christmas thing started happening in the background. What are is you, this? Are you carrying uh, on this with Spice Girls? This is off the rails already. <laughs> 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 can't talk. We're listening to the Spice Girls Christmas record now. Um, if only one of those things could be prevented somehow. <laughs> <laughs> If only Spencer could hit one button on that computer and make that stop. Fine, I'll turn off Sleigh Ride. All right, great. <laughs> we'll get back to it uh, next Christmas, maybe, uh, when things actually come back around. Uh, my name is Ryan Copperwood. Who are you? I'm Spencer Worth Davis. And we have a special guest in the building uh, who... Can we pretend you flew all the way from D.C. just to be on the show? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, cool. Um, who flew all the way from D.C. just to be on the show? Who, who are you? Sam McCullough. Oh, God. <laughs> so got him, dumb. Got him with the rock job earlier. As you planned it, I still did it. <laughs> so dumb. We did scheme that whole thing together. Um, no, who are you actually? Still Sam McCullough. Yeah, well, I know, but the, the rock talked over you the first stepped time. On your touchdown so, call the sorry, first I feel time. really disrespected. Now, I, I'm, we, now I'm being indignant. <laughs> who are you two, Rudy Poof? <laughs> Our question today is, what if Earth is a living organism? Yeah. Um, and brought brought to us by a person, a school of thought, a philosopher. A Gaia hypothesis that was originally presented by a Mr. James Lovelock. La, la, Had that rare indigo. Oh, yeah. Um, so, okay, so a quick, I guess maybe a quick rewind. Did he come up with the name? Did he apply the name? Yes. Well, he came up with the theory. The name comes from uh, the Greek god of the earth, which was Gi. Okay. Uh, and then it was adapted into Gaia to represent earth. Okay. So he came up with a theory that was not, he didn't go like, this is my theory called this. No. Okay. This is just what it's been popularized I mean, Gaia as. And the, and the, uh, the, Gi or GE um, has been applied to earth like geology or geography that uh, what the fuck is the word I'm looking for uh, I don't a, a letters that come before a word uh, prefix pre- is that maybe it pre- I don't know sure it's also where you can get a shot and a beer and a cigarette at the nomad sure <laughs> but anyway that has been used to refer to earth for a long time so it was just uh Applied to his theory. Okay, I'm with it. And the theory is the stating of our question today, which is, he, he originally posed the question, what if Earth was a living organism? His words were, the entire surface of the Earth, life included, is a self-regulating entity. So basically saying that the entire 
Earth operates in cooperation in order to keep existing. Life included. Yes. So that's like us, birds, seaweed, everything that is like we deem as alive. Yeah. Is part of the ecosystem. Where this came from is he was originally, he was hired by NASA in the 60s to come up with a way of detecting life on other planets when they were planning out the original Mars missions. Whoa. And and his way of doing that was to look at the atmospheric composition of planets because he thought that just by looking at the atmosphere of a planet, you could tell whether there was off-gassing from life or not. And so whether or not there was life on a planet would directly affect the atmosphere of that planet. And there were certain kind of uh, signs, certain trademarks that you could look for right. in the atmosphere of a planet, which led him to looking at the atmosphere of our planet and seeing that it kind of adapted and changed over time to allow life to exist mm-hmm. on the planet, as he put it. You know, no, no tea, no shade, no lemonade, but isn't that like mildly reductive? Cause isn't that, aren't you operating under the assumption then that like, so if this dude is going through our planet and going, this is what our planet does to sustain life, then that is the only, I mean, I guess I'm saying, isn't it a little bit reductive? Cause doesn't that operate under the assumption then that life can only operate under the conditions here on the planet? I mean, I, I'm not, right. I mean, I don't know. I, I guess it's a good way of saying life as we know it, could that be there or could we live there if we wanted to? Well, and defining life is, or having a working theory of life is not really something that we've been able to do still. Right. Which I'm sure we'll get into at some point today. We only have one example still. Our sample size is one planet. Right. And even, I mean, NASA astrobiologists don't really have a working theory of what life is or how it operates. And we don't even really have a definition of what life is. We can only describe what we've seen on our planet. Well, and, and I think to that point, one of the things that that we're looking at is like uh, our planet has done, like even if it's not the only planet that can sustain life, like the planet has irrefutably done some really weird stuff to sustain life thus far. Like the mm-hmm. sun used to be, significantly warmer i believe or significantly cooler than it is now but the earth has like regulated itself to keep the temperature at the earth's surface between like 15 and i think 20 or 25 degrees celsius whatever it is and and that's one of the things that lovelock was looking at that originally started him down this path was there's been life on the planet for 3.5 billion years roughly and during that time the the sun or the, the amount of energy that we receive from the sun has increased by 30%. And so three billion years ago, three and a half billion years ago, there would have been some way, there would have had to have been some way that our planet maintained a similar temperature, whether that be through the atmosphere, whether it, we were, um, our atmospheric composition had changed so that earth was holding in more heat. Or one of the other things that he proposed was that the uh, the overall, I forget the word for it, but the overall color of our planet was maybe much darker depending on the distribution of landmass um, or hmm. the amount of cloud cover in the atmosphere. As a way of like attracting light. So that maybe heat. maybe the planet didn't reflect as much light in mm-hmm. the past and we absorbed more. That's why you can't get black car seats, man. You got to get that tan interior. Right. Tan interior. Um, but yeah, that was one of the, the like the driving forces behind this theory was that 
it seemed really coincidental or like too big of a stretch to be coincidental that the planet had shifted and adapted in ways that were uh, so convenient for, for life continuing to exist. That kind of already is blowing my mind right now. Like the fact that, I mean, granted humans have only been here for like 8,000 years, but what? Just wanted to see like if anyone would jump on that one or not. <laughs> so are you still researching? Is that what you're doing? No, like, sorry. No, I, you're fine. I heard your reckless dinosaur museum. Okay, good. <laughs> that was where I was. <laughs> just chose to stay in Wikipedia yeah, for yeah, a moment. Yeah, yeah. No, I was just, just just checking. Um, no, but like it is low key, kind of blowing my mind that for millions of years of of life, that yeah, like the planet would have to adapt, like in our solar system to maintain those conditions over that time. Wow. So to that point about yeah, yeah. this like fully interworked ecosystem, one of the easiest ways I think to kind of understand generally what Lovelock was getting at is this computer model I was telling you guys about, this daisy world thing that mm-hmm. he proposes as part of this. Or basically what he presents is this idea, and I think this was some sort of computer simulation that he and one of his partners did that bore itself out as being scientifically valid, and I think it's one of the pieces of this that the scientific community is most amenable to treating with, like, treating as something with some integrity. But basically the idea is that he asks you to, like, envision a planet where only two things live, and it's two kinds of daisies. Okay. On this planet, the only two things that exist and the only two things that can grow are black daisies and white daisies. Okay. And essentially what happens is that these two types of daisies do very different things, right? Like the black daisies, to your point about car seats, uh, absorb heat and would make the planet hotter. Right. And the white daisies are incredibly useful for reflecting that heat back. Mm -hmm. And the point is that, like, over time, as they modeled this hypothetical planet, the temperature of the planet was essentially regulated by these two types of daisies, Like, as it got too hot, it created a better environment for the white daisies to grow and then reflect that heat back. And then as that cooled the planet off, it created an advantageous environment for the black daisies to grow and then absorb that heat and bring that core temperature back up. So is that like an insinuation that there's an inherent something within the DNA of those plants that responds to certain temperatures or certain conditions? I think it's bigger than that. I think it's the idea that there is some sort of like equilibrium that the planet that hosts those plants is trying to get back to. Mm. And that this larger Gaia theory is essentially like a really complicated, like a million things can grow here version of that path forward. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. He also uses the example of a, like a thermostat or an oven where there's sort of like a target temperature or homeostasis right and we may fluctuate on either side of that to some degree you know like you set your thermostat at 68 degrees for your house if it drops below that the heat's going to kick on temporarily it might be more than 68 degrees when it gets up to 69 or 70 the heat's going to turn off it'll slowly cool off you'll go you know so you're you're fluctuating on either side of this target of this homeostasis sure it, just to clarify, the idea being, though, that it's not just literally with the temperature of the planet. I mean, it is, but it's also, like, a much 
grander, more complicated chemical everything, right? Right. I mean, it's that, like, that that uh, metaphor would apply to the entire surface of the planet and all things living on it. The word. But to your point, not just temperature, right. like atmosphere, air quality, like whatever. Yeah. So the one that I was like looking into or the one thing that I came across when I was doing less research than you two on this was the whole concept. And this goes back to your point, Spence, about um, about how three million years ago there had to have been life sustained under different conditions. It's billion, but yeah. Or what did I say? Is three and a half billion is the furthest back we can like for sure know that there was life. Oh, and I said million. Yeah. Yeah. Three, sorry. Three and a half billion years back. Um, but the, the fact that there had to have been some level of whatever thermostat, like stasis going on. And the one that I saw that that was interesting is the salinity of the ocean, mm-hmm. that the salinity of the ocean to, in order to sustain life has to be, I think it's like 3.5% or something like that, or it has to hover around. It's be within a certain range. Yeah, yeah. The, the salinity of the ocean has to be within a range to be able to, otherwise too much salt, you kill everything and not enough salt. I mean, obviously saltwater animals can't live in fresh water. I wonder about that though. Like, how do we know that it would kill everything? How do we know that life would not adapt to that? You know, how do uh, we know that it would kill everything? <laughs> well, <laughs> no, I know, but it's like, just an ominous phrase. Yeah, yeah. we're we're assuming. Can we try? Well, we're assuming that, right? There's got to be some level of assumption, assumption, or like it, it's based on what we know about the animals that currently live there. But animals are, and life in general, can adapt to almost anything. Uh, well, I mean. I would imagine, and, you know, maybe a lie was born in this moment, but I would imagine that there's been a lot of science done around, like, they probably, do. they probably go around on boats with, like, a big freshwater tank, and they probably just pull stuff out and be like, how do you do? Oh, he's dead. How do you do? Oh, he's dead. But even, like, one species over a pretty short amount of time, like, there are river dolphins in the Amazon. Right. That came, that were originally a saltwater species that yeah, now are sure. a freshwater species. And that's over a period of like less than a hundred years. So you're saying from an evol- Over billions, I'm sure things could evolve to live with a slightly higher level of salt in their water well, or a higher temperature or whatever. What you're getting at is this idea that like the way that things are, or the way that animals or plants or whatever our ecosystem looks like now is inherently correct. Right. Is not necessarily true. It might just be different. Right. Like maybe that three-eyed fish from like the episode of The Simpsons where they dump nuclear waste everywhere <laughs> is like equally as good. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Like we're looking at one very narrow band and assuming that like that's right and that's how things are supposed to be because we don't have any other context. This is always where this podcast ends up is like <laughs> your, your sliver your sliver of moment in time is not significant and what if it's supposed to be different and you're just an idiot. We're not even supposed to be, <laughs> but, but like I think we underestimate the range of possibilities and the way that things could be because we only have such a small frame of reference. So actually to that point, one of the most interesting things about Lovelock and the whole Gaia thing to me as we were looking through it is how new it is. Like this is a theory, like a scientific theory. years old. Yeah. It's from like the 1970s. Yeah. The book was published in 79. So less, less than 50 years. So like less than 40 years. I, I just think it's fascinating that like, as we've gone through all of this period of human, like all of human history, that like we just got to this place where we're considering this question at the science, like as a scientific community mm-hmm. in the last like 35 years. He brings up, Lovelock brings up the idea of uh, cybernetics, which basically is that there, the, the idea in, uh, you hear about a lot in computing, but it kind of 
relates to human beings and is something that we do naturally too, um, of a lot of systems operating together in, in uh, service of like an ultimate goal. So he uses the example of, um, and we, we do this a ton, like without ever thinking about it. like if you're standing on a ship that's moving across the water, you know, it's swaying side to side, it's maybe moving back and forth. There are to stay upright and to stay focused at like looking at the horizon or doing something on the, on board that ship, there are a ton of processes within your body that have to happen in order for that to continue shifting your weight. Mm. Right. So your, you know, your eyes have to take in information about your surroundings. Uh, you know, your equilibrium inside your ear tells you when you're balanced, your muscles have to shift back and forth, et cetera, et cetera. And so he uses that as an example of, you could look at the planet sort of in the same way that maybe there's some, some bigger goal that we're not necessarily aware of that the whole planet is working as one unit um, in order to move towards that goal. And maybe humans or maybe life in general are one aspect of that. Maybe we're, you know, equivalent to one organ or one, like one specific process in the body um, acting towards some sort of unknown bigger goal. We always, as humans, assume that we know what the goal is or that we know the big picture and we really don't. Which is why I wanted to pull us back there because, like, the other piece we were kind of glossing over is, like, with these other species that have gone extinct, the guy hypothesis sort of implies that, like, none of this is random and that there's a value to all of these different life forms and they all perform a job. Mm -hmm. Like, to your point about multiple systems working towards the same goal, it would be like if you just, like, went into, like... uh, a factory assembly line and we're like, Oh yeah, all these parts, they just do stuff. Who knows? Like it's carefully constructed towards one ultimate goal. Right. And what if that is how all of these species in the world interact? It's not just like, Oh yeah, butterflies flap around. It's crazy. Yeah. And there's actually like value and purpose to that, that helps like maintain this homeostasis, which was a great word that you brought out earlier. I was very jealous. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like someone else should have the button bar for those moments. (laughs) Yeah, we, maybe we all maybe we all need one. Dude, there would be nothing else it happening. Would be the it podcast. would be madness. That's all that would ever happen. What if you listen to forty minutes of nonsense? <laughs> well, sort of what this is already. <laughs> I yeah, I think that's your your uh, assembly line or your factory example is a good one too. In that, like, even if you were to look at one part of the human body, like if you just looked at a hand without the context of what a human being was you would have no idea you wouldn't be able to put together the bigger picture. Right. And so to, to look at like a a human perspective of human life is most important. Who knows? Maybe, maybe it's not. And maybe, you know, lots of other species had to come and go for us to even exist on this planet. Yeah. You know, there, there were other animals that had to get out of the way so that mammals could exist on the planet. Right. You know, there are tons of plant species that like without trees, human beings could have never existed on the planet. And we went billions of years without having trees. For sure. I think we're just in, you know, we're naturally inclined to take short of sort of the the short term view of things or maybe there's a lot more to that picture that we're just one component of and we're not aware of the bigger goal. Uh, Two in the in the face of those extension things, like the one thing I was thinking about when like you're talking about like the car, like the engine, I think like that's part of why like personally when I'm like oh god we lost one is it's like 
It's like, oh, the engine doesn't have a carburetor anymore. And I don't know if that's going to be a bad thing for like the next five miles, but in the next like 50, that could be like really bad for the engine. Maybe it's got to get out of the way to be replaced with something else though. Like maybe our job is to warm up the planet a few degrees so that the reptilians that are used to living inside the earth (laughs) where it's much warmer can come out, can come out to the surface because they, they originated at a time way back in history where there was more nuclear material and nuclear reactions happening naturally on the planet. Oh, sure. And so they were used to more heat, more heat and more uh, radiation. Right. So maybe our job as humans is to fuck up the planet (laughs) in quotes by making it really warm and full of uh, nuclear waste and radiation so that the reptilians can take their natural place on top of the food chain. So, so they they can come out in. So they can come out in their Hawaiian shirts and their sunglasses. Like we're, right. we're we're here for we're here for paradise. Yeah, I guess that's all I'm trying to say. Hold on, do you like, think the reptilian people are just the characters from dinosaurs on ABC <laughs> from like 1995? God, I fucking hope so, dude. If they <laughs> come out reptilians of the, in Hawaiian shirts, man, if, let's do it. If I'm the baby, is like the first thing we hear when oh <laughs> when dinosaurs come out of the inside of the building. The last human being on Earth just gets clubbed over the head with a not the mama. <laughs> Please, please find that drop. Oh my please God. find that drop. We'll add it in post. Uh, um, on that note, I think we're going to take a short break and uh, we're going to resuscitate as soon as we come back on the What If Podcast. We want to hear from you. Send us a message. Email hi, that's hi, at whatifpodcast.com or leave us a voicemail at 612-246-4614. We're back. You are listening to the What If Podcast. God damn it! If you, uh, if you have any stories about reptilians you want to tell us, please. Please do. Uh, Post s- them on YouTube with the Gaia Theory tag along with all the rest of them. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, no, but do, uh, do call and leave us a voicemail at 612-246-4614 and uh, we'll play your reptilian story on the show for sure. Have you checked uh, our voicemail recently, by the way? Uh, not today. Oh, okay. Do we potentially have some? Well, uh, there, I, I heard a rumor that we might have a cult story Ooh. on its way to us, but we'll have to do like a that's recap. How, that's how lit our listenership is. I know <laughs> in advance about every voicemail, voicemail we voicemail we're get. getting. <laughs> One day we're gonna get some really wild ones and be like, "Who is this person?" We're gonna fly somebody out here who tells us. Like, Someday the we're gonna we... get a phone call from a person we don't <laughs> we know. We don't know. <laughs> um. Yeah, do that. Do leave us a voicemail uh, or send us an email at hi at whatifpodcast.com. We're we're talking about what if the Earth was a living organism today, and mm-hmm. the Gaia theory brought to us by the one and only Jimmy Love Lockdown. That's our guy. Yeah, and uh, and we left talking about reptilians, and I don't think Sam was going to continue us on the road of reptilians uh, when we left. No, I wasn't going to continue us on the road of reptilians. What were you going to continue us on the road so- of? The other thing I thought was really interesting as we were, as I was digging through all this stuff was like to start thinking about the world in this way, which again is a very new concept, seems to be r- directly tied to the way that we start to like perceive individual species. Like as we think about things that are going extinct or could be going extinct, like it's not just, oops, well, looks like all the bees are dying. It's like, hey, maybe we really needed those things. Right. And like starting to think about like the broader impact of some of those species on the planet as a whole. Like, yeah. not that 
I'm no expert on colony collapse or really any of this. <laughs> but that's kind of the point of this whole thing. <laughs> I'm 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 learning quickly. <laughs> but that like it also seems to be a relatively new consideration that we're looking at these things through the lens of what if that thing's really important? And one of the things that hopped out to me was like how little about all of what is actually here we still know. Yeah. I was reminded of, I was in Costa Rica a few years ago um, and was talking to this guy who runs like the largest national park in the country. And he was telling us at the time that there are people who still believe that like in this national park in Costa Rica, which is a rainforest, that one, they haven't identified everything that lives there yet. And two, there are like, there are scientists who believe that the cure for cancer or the cure for HIV or like many of these diseases that are still stumping the scientific community could very well live in like some of these remote areas where we have yet to catalog all of these species. So that was, that was the sort of like tangent that all of the Gaia stuff took me down is like this broader consciousness of what these species mean to not just necessarily an ecosystem, which is a concept that is not particularly new, but like a series of ecosystems creating one big system. Right. Well, and yeah, the fact that we don't even know what all of the potential variables in that system are. We don't even know what all the parts of that system right. are, much right. less the variables. Yeah. True. Like, we don't know most of what's in the ocean still. Right. You know? And, like, when you, you brought up, you know, with Costa Rica and especially insects, we, yeah. we have no idea what's going on with most insects or, like, we discover new species of insects all the time. And that's just on, you know, the 30% of the planet that we can get to easily. Like you mm-hmm. start talking about the oceans and we really have no idea. Right. Like, again, maybe we're warming up the planet so that the oceans can <laughs> rise so that the dolphins can finally take over. <laughs> maybe the dolphins are the ones really driving this ship. Check out what if dolphins get skydive to, to find the actual details on, on that theory. But yeah, that's a really good point. Of like, we don't even know what all of the systems in this organism are necessarily. Well, and I feel like for most of like modern human history, all of that has been filtered through this lens of like, what can I human person do with this animal or this crop or this whatever. Right. And it's only in very recent years that we've started to think about like, what is this thing doing that I'm not seeing or -hmm. that I'm not necessarily feeling? Yeah. Um, And I think that's the part of like the theory or the hypothesis that Lovelock lays out that is sort of interesting. Like it, I don't know. At some point I want to get into like Lovelock and this theory and like him to some extent and how credible this is. Cause I think that's kind of fascinating, but I think what he did find was like some little gap in the scientific community that was maybe operating from the wrong perspective or like was missing things because of the perspective that they were coming at these scientific questions with. And I think that's some of what's, fascinating about the the hypothesis just generally speaking well and it was at a time where our perspective was starting to shift too with being able to get into space and you know we not only being able to get into orbit but then being able to get to the moon and then looking at missions to mars and the russians had successfully put a uh, a probe on venus and like we're starting to explore other parts of the solar system and starting to get a different perspective on oh, like, it's not just Earth. There's maybe a, a bigger system here. Right. And that's that's an interesting thing that Lovelock brings up, too, is, like, looking at the Earth as an organism, but then, again, if you take that scale out even further, 
you know, what is Earth's place in our solar system, in our universe, or in our uh, galaxy, in our universe, and the process of like stars and planets and galaxies die and are born all the time. And maybe this is all part of a bigger process that's necessary. And it's necessary for planets to die because as they go through that process, they release more hydrogen out into space or the atmosphere changes and things that were trapped on that planet are released back into space. Just as when an animal dies, their remains are released back into the ground and right. facilitates the the growth and the, and other life. There's, there's no reason to think that that wouldn't be happening on a bigger scale too. You know, when, when stars, when you get a neutron star that releases a bunch of material back into the universe, other stars are born out off of that planets are, you know, born around those stars and so on. Right. So like, again, getting back to that perspective of like, we have to, because on a day-to-day level to exist, we have to look at things from a human perspective. Right. But in the big picture, like humans probably don't matter or we're one little part of a much larger process. And maybe we have to die or our planet has to change for that bigger process to continue. Like what if our planet becoming uninhabitable is no more consequential than like a seven-year-old losing a tooth? Right. Maybe that's what we should have titled this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Still time, baby. Still time. And and just, you know, the idea of regeneration and change too. Like, I don't know if this is actually true or not, but they... I've heard that all of the cells in your body are regenerated or replaced over a period of like seven to 10 years. Yeah. I've heard that too. And you know, on a, on a bigger scale and on a larger time, time scale, maybe that happens in our universe too. And things have to die and be reborn and change and mutate for that process to continue on a bigger scale. It's an interesting concept to think about the like hierarchies of interdependent ecosystems like you can go all the way down to like i mean i guess literally like a cellular level if you wanted to go down to like the interdependent or even smaller than cells i guess but like interdependent cells in a body in an ecosystem in a specific locale which works off of other ecosystems in a planet in a solar system in a oh my god on orion's belt oh my god on orion's belt i never pulled the damn men in black audio (laughs) or we were gonna do that last night we did or the magic school bus audio i i want to know if there's like an actual magic school bus episode that's like i feel like they went inside a cell in a body or into outer space in like every every episode true I also haven't watched any of them in about 20 years, so I could be wrong. I hope you find yourself so deep in the Magic School Bus, like, (laughs) web forum community. For anyone listening to this podcast, if you take nothing else away from this episode, take away the fact that every episode of the Magic School Bus is on Netflix right now. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Oh, man. So... That's going to inform. No one's going to listen to the next 20 minutes of this podcast because <laughs> you should just, all right. throw your phone in the trash and go watch every episode of the Magic School Bus. That but are, yeah, they're all out there. You don't have to throw your phone in the trash. No, you, you, can, you can just close the podcast app and open the Netflix app. <laughs> nope. Nope. Um, um, so you know how I, I told you that I felt like my heart was going to explode after <laughs> that weird energy drink from the co-op? Did it while we were on the break? No, but I started feeling normal again. Oh, that's good. But then I started drinking coffee again. After that, and your heart's gonna explode now I feel again. like I might die on the podcast again. <laughs> so, if you don't hear anything from me for a while, I think I've probably died. We'll check. We'll check in. If you are you just gonna like die with your eyes open, sitting in the chair, like oh, 
Yeah, if you just hear the Lovelock soundbar drop repeating over and over again, Spencer's passed out. Lip, 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 lip. Oh, God. Oh, Spen- oh, Spencer's what? corpse is on the NPC again. It's like passing out on your keyboard and just the Z key for 340 characters. Anyway, so here goes nothing. Here goes nothing. I like that I like that you feel like your heart's going to explode and you took another sip of coffee. Yeah, like half a cup left. I got to finish it. Yo, can we talk about this weird... Love lock motherfucker for a second. Yeah, let's. I would love to. Let's talk about it. Because this is the most fascinating part of this to me is this dude. Like, I, I, I was sort of in and out on the Gaia thing. I think that, like, conceptually, there's some interesting stuff there. And I meant what I said earlier about, like, perspective and changing the scientific community perspective, and even, even if it's not, like, fantastic. But I think this dude is genuinely sort of fascinating. Yeah. So there's some, like, Contention in the scientific community about like how valid the Gaia theory part of this is. I think there's a lot, isn't there? Yeah, I don't uh, think it's very widely accepted. Like he had a really hard time even publishing any of this. I forget this is a podcast and people can't see my skeptical hand gestures over yeah. here in the corner. <laughs> but so basically, he's a legitimate scientist, and he invented something earlier in his career in like the late fifties called the electron capture detector. That sounds fun. Which is some sort of device that I'm not nearly clever enough to fully understand that was one of the earliest ways, apparently, of detecting, like, the presence of certain chemicals or particles in the air and things like this. Apparently, it was very effective, according to this BBC documentary Uh, I I saw. I think that was part of his work for NASA with the the Mars Voyager missions, is that they wanted to send the the probe—when they were initially sending probes to Mars— they wanted to have uh, a way of detecting signs of life in the atmosphere. Right. But it needed to be incredibly small because every ounce of anything that you put on a spaceship costs another like $7 million or something. Yeah, insane. right. And I think at some point this thing was repurposed to like, uh, to essentially like help us originally figure out in the 60s like what was happening when we loaded up like pesticides on our foods like the consequences Mm -hmm. of that were Mm -hmm. originally able to be seen because of this device in some fashion so Mm. for all of the like somewhere on the scale between like skepticism and downright disdain for the guy hypothesis that exists in the scientific community it seems like they're pretty like solidly in agreement that this thing he invented beforehand was like top notch Mm. and definitely very good yeah, so he, I, I don't think his general credibility as like a dude or as a scientist is really in question. This theory or hypothesis, it, I think it's you have to look at it more on like a philosophical level than like an actual scientific hypothesis. The only reason he's become fascinating to me is because he's so closely tied to it, mm-hmm. and so there's a piece of this for me, like very not scientific person. Like I am about as far from being competent in the hard sciences as like a grown adult can possibly be. Fit yeah. right in with us and yeah. our listeners. Yeah, That's I was right. just going to say. Liberal arts forever. <laughs> <laughs> forever and ever. CLA. English degree. Yes. Um, but it seems to me like what's great about the hypothesis is it does have a lot of elements of like well-written science fiction to it. Mm-hmm. Like it's mm-hmm. interesting, it's creative, it's like engaging enough that we can talk about it for an hour pretty easily right. and like find fascinating like tunnels and subplots and all that to go down. Well, and it was originally published in a journal edited by Carl Sagan. 
Oh, so interesting. The, I didn't the know initial, that. like, no one wanted to publish this uh, first article that he wrote about that turned into the the book, which I guess we should give credit to, is called Gaia. Uh, what is the full name of this book? The, it's called Gaia. The subtitle is like a new way of looking at life on Earth or something. Um, but yeah, it was no one wanted to publish it because it was just too out there and like wasn't yeah. really backed by any science. And he finally pitched it to Carl Sagan, who published it in. I forget the name of the journal, but a journal that he edited at the Interesting. time. So they're probably both just high as hell yes. and <laughs> pitching well, sci-fi stories to each other. And so I gather that after the like invention of this electron detector that he was very successful with, he basically like went real reclusive and decided like, oh, I can't work with the scientific community. Oh, I need you know to work independently. I can't possibly work with others, and was very like. It has a little bit of that like mysterious recluse sort of vibe to it. Yeah. And I'm into it. Yeah. And like again, as a narrative device, it's fascinating and like makes right. the dude all the more compelling. But as a legitimate scientist, there are things like throughout this guy's career that just make me like raise an eyebrow and go like, what? And so the biggest one I came across that made me like really skeptical of almost everything else he said afterwards, because right. like my like huckster detection meter was just like <laughs> swirling all around, was Airborne. so dude in like the 1980s, shortly after the Gaia thing, was talking about the impacts of climate change and like our changing atmosphere before there was even a term for that, basically, and was really, really early on the like. The planet does not like what we are doing to it, mm -hmm. and maybe we got to pump them. Like, let's just mm -hmm. figure out, like, what this is, like, cool it on, like, torching all the coal we can get our hands on yeah, and yeah. just, like, talk about this. Yeah. And that was—so he was, like, a pioneer on that front. So about—let's see. I think the interview was from 2010— he did this interview that was basically like, climate change, who gives a shit? <laughs> Where, did you see this? I should probably turn my mic on before I try and say things. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've read some of his stuff, too, that's just like, eh, whatever, it's probably not a big deal. The, the atmosphere's got our back. We can just do whatever. Well, so for a while, he was arguing, eh, it's too late, whatever, fuck it. Like, mm -hmm. very much Sam McCullough post-Donald Trump election shit. <laughs> like, we're all going to die, and, like, who gives a fuck? Right. But that transitioned a few years ago. He was talking to someone about climate change, and he was like, well, I don't know if we should do anything about climate change. Maybe it's really not a big deal. For instance, Singapore has air quality that's three times worse than like the worst air quality that you're supposed to live in, and a bunch of people still want to live in Singapore. So maybe all of this is about nothing. And that sort of like... 50 million Elvis fans can't be wrong, like, logic shit coming from people who are ostensibly hard scientists. My curiosity is killing me just like a cat would be killed. <laughs> the curiosity, yeah. Shout out to yeah. the Macho Man. Randy Macho Man Savage <laughs> sounds so much like Alex Jones from InfoWars. <laughs> oh I'll never God. be able to unhear that connection. Oh, my God. <laughs> also, uh, add the Alex Jones wrong. goblins. Dude, bit to your button bar. Like, you gotta even, do it. Uh, goblins even as a joke i can't stomach <laughs> alex jones like it's just not even funny to me because it's so over the top and so obnoxious and I, I will never bad. play an alex jones sounder on this podcast i think he and macho man might be brothers well <laughs> they probably do the same amount of cocaine <laughs> <laughs> the dude the dude live streams like 
90 hours a day, so he's probably got to be. <laughs> oh, God, oh, I fuck. wish. Dude, if. Is he still alive? I can't imagine he is. <laughs> too much, too how, much cocaine in yeah, that heart. How much coke and steroids can one man handle? And still live. Mm-hmm. Um, I, while you guys talk, I will. I will find out if, okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. if our guy Macho Man is is still out there. Good. We'll we'll get it back on the rails. Anyhow, all of all of that is to say that I think that for me, having dug through a lot of the Gaia stuff and a lot of the James Lovelock stuff, there's a lot of like it feels similar to some of the stuff that uh, and you guys have talked about this on the podcast before. It, it feels similar to like some of the Scientology story in parts. It's got a lot of like. Huckster selling a vision of something that like, oh, you can't see it because I have to work alone. And uh, well, maybe, you know, if if it's going to inconvenience everyone, maybe I'll just back way off. Like, I don't know. There there were a few red flags in there. And maybe it's just the fact that this dude's now like 85 years old and doesn't yeah. know what's what. And he, Yeah. Or maybe he's just like not out here to like fight a fight at the age that he's at, yeah. especially if he's been perceived as like kind of wrong or or very wrong for a long time like maybe he's like you know what whatever like this is a thing that i stood by for a while and i still kind of do but what is it going to gain me at the age of 85 to be like real hardline about this stuff it does seem though like it's a little bit ridiculously counterintuitive to his whole thing of like hey this all functions well actually okay so here's a question is it counterintuitive if you genuinely believe that the planet as itself is a self-regulating organism, maybe it's not counterintuitive at all to be like, climate change doesn't matter because one way or another, like like your ship metaphor is a good one. We're going like, to come back to homeostasis yeah, somehow. Yeah, like the ship is, the ship might be like feeling like it's going to tip over right now. We're going to literally write the ship somehow. Liter- maybe literally write the ship somehow. And even if that means that like humans die... And stop burning some or some or a significant number of us to stop doing the thing we're doing. Also, for the rest of us, if we see people just start dropping dead in Singapore, we might notice and actually start doing something. Right. Uh, Real quick, I put it into the Googler. Good Googly Moogly. And Randy Savage died in 2011 at the age of 58. Okay. R.I.P. Don't do drugs, kids. Extremely R.I.P. Don't do drugs and don't. Spend your life beating yourself against other human also, beings. Uh, I mean, I would encourage being a pro wrestler. Just don't do as many drugs as no. he probably did. There's that. Um, that's, yeah, yeah heart, I, heart attack at age 58. All right. Yeah, it's the cocaine, not that's, the wrestling. Yeah, probably. probably. Mm-hmm. I, guess, um, I guess I just feel like, you know, as much as I would agree, and from a human perspective, we go, we should self-regulate the planet. If his theory in his mind is genuinely a belief that the planet as a whole is self-regulating, then he must believe that we don't have any more power to regulate or deregulate what's going on in the planet than the planet as a whole does. So like maybe he's, maybe that's why he's like, well, you know, like maybe there's too many people on one side of the boat if to, to keep the metaphor going and that's hipping the boat in one direction, but eventually a couple or a bunch of people are going to fall off the boat <laughs> and that's going to rebalance the boat and the boat's going to come back to like stasis. I guess, I guess all I'm trying to say is like, to me, that doesn't necessarily reduce credibility in my mind just because it seems like 
it you could find a way to fold that into his theory that like yeah yeah we are we are probably killing a lot of bees and sardines and yeah. we're doing a lot of really bad shit and like exterminating insects and in trees and stuff but like She'll come back around like it always has. It has for three billion years. So well, and maybe to take your metaphor a step further, like maybe it won't write itself and maybe the ship will go down and the ocean won't give a fuck because it's an ocean and shit will go on as it always has. Yeah, right. Or maybe even the scarier version of that is what if our versions of right and wrong are completely human centric and it's the job of humans per Spencer's earlier point right. to just be the like dead skin that gets sloughed off so that something else can grow. Yeah. Like that, that to me is the tricky one. Cause like, if you think about the way that we perceive like other animals in, I guess most notably like the food chain that are like, like cows, like cows aren't, cows don't have the like consciousness that we think of. And in part, I think it's because we, it's like cruel, right? Like if you think that a cow understands that its job is just to like be born and then get murdered so that I, I humans think can eat it. I think it's 100% that. I don't think it's partially to to justify it. I think it's yeah. purely to justify it, that we assign them less consciousness than us. Or, or we just don't even really entertain the notion that they could be conscious because it would be horrifyingly cruel exactly. to believe that that was the way of the world. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that's part of the problem with like taking the guy hypothesis to its logical end is like, maybe we are here to die. Mm-hmm. Like maybe our purpose is to die and like what we want or don't want out of this world doesn't matter. Yeah. And like, we're just going to die because that's the most useful thing. And that's a terrifying thing for us to be conscious of, totally. but like maybe that's what it is. Yeah. And I think it, I think it, it goes back to that whole, the, the fever thing, <laughs> you know, like is global warming a fever and we are the bug that a fever is going to rid, uh, get rid of because it's a fever, you know? Yeah. But even that is like, even that is still really human centric, right? Yeah. Like it might just be that there's not any purpose that we'll ever, ever understand. Right. The universe just wants us called. Yeah. Or maybe we're here to supply genetic data for the greys and their hybrid program. Oh you know, oh maybe... Here we go. Here we go. Maybe that's all we're really here for. Uh, we were talking about this earlier, and definitely the best thing about this hypothesis is how quickly on YouTube you go from, like, <laughs> sit-down BBC interviews with this, like, portly 90-year-old British scientist to, like, reptiles live in the core of the earth and they're coming for us all. It's, like, three videos Dude, down. The, the first three results are, like, James Lovelock related, and then the fourth one is David Icke, and it's just all downhill <laughs> from there. I, I still feel like nothing is better than being on a YouTube video that you're watching, and as you're watching it, you're like... What is going on right now? And then you scroll down and the top rated comment is just somebody going, oh, so I ended up on this part of YouTube again. <laughs> you know, you're like, you're like, shout out to that dude uh, for totally echoing my sentiment right. right now of like, I clicked too many related videos and I, <laughs> I need to climb my ass back out of the well. And now I'm watching the, uh, the compilations that people put together of YouTube glitches where they say that they're shifting into reptilians and then back. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. <laughs> And you're like, oh no, the K-hole has consumed uh, me. Man, a bush is a shapeshifter. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, oh my I, god. I, well, I, and the Gaia stuff brings both the reptile people out and the like 
as, as Spencer and I were talking about earlier, and the like overly enthusiastic yogis who oh, are big yeah. time. who are like credits to planet Earth for all twenty three minutes of this footage, <laughs> and it's like. <laughs> Just some voiceover about how, like, your soul is connected to a flower's petals for, like, 23 minutes of, like, awful, awful, like, new agey shit. Cool. Sponsored by Core Power. Sponsored by... (laughs) Was it really? No. Uh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Have the the flat earthers ever gotten on the the Gaia hypothesis? I don't know. What would the connection be? They're crazy as fuck and don't know what they're talking about. There's that. And it's the earth. There is... Yeah, I wow. Yeah, I don't maybe, even. Maybe the flat Earth is one ring in the tree of life. See, and like that—that's <laughs> just dialogue from Avatar. That's that's all that is. <laughs> or maybe from that yoga voiceover. <laughs> right, yeah, right. I'm certain there's overlap there. Brought to you by Lululemon. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! It's all connected. Um, that's the best. That's the best part of like taking this. And repurposing it. It's like, oh, the world's a living, breathing ecosystem. So yoga is super important now. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's my takeaway right So here. buy these stretchy pants. It, right. is, it is kind of a leap. It is kind of a leap. Well, okay. Last thing from from my notes, at least, sure, that I wanted sure. to talk about. Um, we can talk about David Icke and cows and yoga pants for as long as you guys want. Totally. Uh, if... We take the the Gaia hypothesis somewhat at face value that the whole planet is an organism. Does that give any credence to an idea of some sort of uh, like universal, so to speak, or planet wide consciousness or some sort of, uh, you know, like if we use the analogy of our body as a living organism is as the planet is as a living organism, you can't directly, you know, your the the muscles in your leg can't speak to or communicate with the, you know, the cells in your lungs, but in a way they all do communicate and relate to each other. Right. On some level, are we connected to all things living on the surface of the planet? Then if we take that hypothesis sort of on face, I don't know. I think this is in, in line with your question and and maybe it's a little bit off, but it's something I think that's definitely related that I was thinking about when I was looking at this stuff and we did some, some preliminary talking about it, but like, I guess, I guess in my mind, when I think about the idea of like maintaining a homeostasis, right? Like if something sways this way, something's got to sway it back. Like the word that keeps popping up in my brain is um, like intention, right? Like, like there's in some ways there's like a perceived intention behind doing that. Right. Like, you know, like if, there's got to be some bigger goal that you're you're working towards. Yeah, like, like the, what is the 68 degrees right, of your thermostat? Right, yeah. exactly. You know, like that that 68 degrees being set somewhere, and all things relating back to that. There's an intention behind the 68 degrees, and and I guess it's a little different than what you're talking about. But it, it's hard for me to imagine a world that has a stasis that is an intentional stasis that is a maintained balance without there being some thing that is driving whatever that balance point is. We wouldn't necessarily be aware of it. Like look at oh, the, no, look not at at the analogy of the, the thermostat in your house being set to 68. Your furnace doesn't know why it's pumping out hot air at certain times. Right. And there's not like some bigger meaningful reason. It's that the process in, processes in our body work best and we feel most comfortable when we're in, you know, a certain temperature. Like totally. there's, there's no 
deeper meaning to it, really. It's and in some ways, it's purely coincidental. But I guess what I'm saying is, well, but I guess what I'm saying is, somebody had to set the thermostat, right? Or the, to, for there to be a balance point found and come back to. Like we we don't necessarily like <clears throat> your your brain tells you this feels good or this doesn't feel good, right? But we don't necessarily understand all the processes that led to that point of like why we feel most comfortable at a certain temperature. Yeah, not at all. Nor if you take that the other in the other direction to a, a much larger scale, we would have no idea what the what the goal is or what the bigger picture is. No, definitely. I guess what I'm trying to communicate is that at a Gaia size level of things, it seems like there is, if we are, like you said, if we are to take it at face value. That, that there is this stasis, it seems like there's some sort of broader consciousness that is that is trying to make things habitable, that is trying to bring things back to zero. Right. And, and well, not positive one or negative one. You're asking who decides where stasis is. Yeah. That, that, that basically if... If there is a stasis on the planet that we're saying is is that it keeps coming back to, who decided that stasis, that Gaia, and 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 is there? This is going to sound stupid, but like, is there a consciousness, a broader consciousness to that life form? Right. If, if if we are to say that Earth is a life form, does that life form then have a consciousness to be able to push itself back to and, a flattened ship? And I and I'm I with know. you, and and I. I guess what I was saying is if you take the the scale up a few few levels oh I see what the you're earth is you know on on a universal level a very small part of a universal process yeah just like you know we don't know why our bodies we can't control or we don't consciously tell our bodies to be like hey stay around 98 degrees inside yeah, your body right that's our that's our homeostasis that's our level but it's not we don't do that on a conscious level. Mm-hmm. It's to allow other things to happen. Right. So maybe the earth needs to exist in a certain form at a specific time so that some other much larger process can continue. Sure. So you're now suggesting not only that earth might be its own like self-regulating organism, but that it might have a role inside a larger like galactic version of this as well. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm I think if, if you're going to, if you're going to accept the guy hypothesis, then like, a bigger version of it's a pretty logical next step. Right. If, if we're accepting that the earth could be a conscious or not, well, I guess we also took a leap from living to conscious at some point. Right. But if that the earth could be a living organism, why couldn't the universe be a living organism? And actually, I think that leap between living and conscious is really interesting. Like specifically among the folks who seem to kind of like glom onto the guy hypothesis, there seems to be a weird blurring of that line. And some of it is driven by like, you know, the Greek goddess Gaia that you were talking about earlier is mm-hmm. essentially like what we conceive of in, you know, stories and fables is like mother nature. Right. And it's been like, uh, what's the endowed with human characteristics. What is What is the, the personification, word? the word I'm looking for personified. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. We'll go with that. The right one. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm two English majors asking a fucking yeah. art major over here. Yeah. Person- I, don't, I don't know how words Personification is the, is the process. So yeah. I thought the study of words was the study of bugs a couple episodes ago. I don't know. Shit. <laughs> I did enjoy that. Uh, I also like the idea that there are no two people in the world who know both of those words. Yeah. <laughs> like there's, there's just no middle to that. Venn diagram. <laughs> no, there isn't. Um, but like, I, I think that, piece of the guy hypothesis that it like has this mother earth sort of character to it 
is like makes for a very easy leap from living to conscious. Right. And there's this idea, I think, among some people who have attached themselves to this, that like some of what the earth is doing now is like punitive in some way and that it's not necessarily mm-hmm. just self-regulating, but that it's like angry or upset or right. cleansing or like purging itself or whatever right. it is. And that that starts to go a little bit sideways I think for we, me. I think we do that a lot with like natural disasters specifically. Like if there's like a really massive, awful earthquake or tsunami. God or, is here to punish the gays. Yeah, exactly. Like like that's the. But but I think I think even if you don't come at it from that like you know obviously you know ridiculous religious perspective, there are people that are like, oh like that's that's like the earth saying the it's not happy. Yeah. yeah, the gods are angry. Totally. Well, and I think it's really interesting that you went straight to like. And I think it's a pretty logical way of doing it, especially for anyone who's been exposed to a lot of organized religion, like to jump from if we are conscious and if we are like being pointed towards stasis or balance or whatever, who decides what balance is, like there's a pretty quick jump to like any number of versions of monotheism in that. Sure. And Mm -hmm. ultimate. Like, yeah, that someone has to be the decider, which I think might also be really human because one of the answers here might just be that like of all the like thousands, millions of planets or stars or whatever where there could be life in the galaxy or in other galaxies that like this one is especially capable of hosting life. And so we have all these different life forms and like it's just sort of random that it's happening. But the like now that we have that randomness, it's going to try and balance itself out. Like there's a, there's a big bang version of this that also works. I think it just basically involves you believing that like nothing matters. And like all of this is dust and eat Arby's. Yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Some extremely nihilist shit. Try the curly fries. (laughs) There is no God, no gods, no Santas. Eat Arby's. It just always ends in a really dark place with the guys. <laughs> yeah, I love, that's, that's what I love about this podcast, man. It's a much different version than my regular brand of nihilism. <laughs> I'm here for that. I'm here for it. We like have a lot of fun on the way to right. settling every time on like, well, yeah, everything's probably fucked. And we're all gonna die. <laughs> Sweet <laughs> release of death it is. Or just talk. <laughs> talk, we'll see out there. <laughs> we always come back to the same conclusion. Yeah. It's Spice Girls and death. Yeah. Hey, we, man, what else do you need? What? <laughs> Sexually, nothing. <laughs> oh, oh, grown. This shit ain't regular, man. This shit ain't regular, man. Um, Extremely not. I guess we should thank uh, Jimmy Love Lockdown. That's our guy. Can we give it one? More? Can we give it one more just for oh, the road? Fine. I went to my my page from from Deer Kid. So let me get back oh, to. So uh, I got you though. Jimmy Love Lockdown. Um, God, God, God. Oh God! Such a drug. It, it, it's the worst. It's so upsetting. It's so upsetting. <laughs> so um, good. Yeah, God. I don't know. I don't know if we got much else. I think that's where we call that one. Sam, uh, thank you for being here, bro. Thanks for thanks for having me. Thanks fellas. for joining. We should uh, we should make sure you do it every time you come back. I for, mean, every time you intentionally fly back to Minnesota to be on the podcast. Yeah, I'm gonna need an EP credit for that. No problem. We got Any you. anything you want to plug? Follow you on the internet anywhere, anything like that? Twitter.com, McCullough Sam. My DMs are open. Listen to all the other episodes that I'm not on. I just finished them, uh, and they're excellent. They're, they're like, like genuinely really good, and I already have a hat that I paid you American dollars uh, for, well, so I don't need to plug you know, it on the internet. Nice. But if they still have hats left, rate and review on iTunes. Yeah. 
Send these send these dudes a screenshot. They'll give you a hat. Yeah, it's a great hat. It's pretty good. I, Thanks, I, man. It's man. one of my favorite hats. I love that. I love that. We're like, hey, bro, you want to plug anything? He's like, yeah, I want to plug you guys. Plug this podcast, <laughs> plug man. Y'all, this is great <laughs> out here. Um, all right, man. I think uh, I think yeah. that's gonna do it for us. Until next time. Uh, we'll see you next week. All right, squad. Be safe. Love you. Bye. We'll be back next week with another episode of the What If podcast. Learn more at www.whatifpodcast.com.